Hello everybody, happy almost Groundhog Day. Welcome to the Tuesday Toolbox Meeting of Adult Children of Alcoholics in Cowbell Hill, Brooklyn. My name is Anne, I'm a Tuesday Toolbox member and an adult child. We are recording our speakers every week because we're hoping others will benefit from hearing these stories from our members. We'd love to hear your comments and questions. Our email address is TuesdayToolboxACA at gmail.com. Adult Children of Alcoholics is a 12-step program of recovery for people who grew up in an alcoholic or otherwise dysfunctional home. If you'd like to find a meeting in your area, go to adultchildren.org and click on Find a Meeting. This week's speaker was recorded way back in August, but it's only gotten better with time. Please welcome our friend Linus. Hey guys, I'm Linus. Linus. Um, this is my. F oh, can I have a ten, five, and a one, please? This is my first time qualifying ever. Mm -hmm. So I have to be really entertaining. Um, okay, I want to. I want to read about um, dissociation really quick from the red book. Repressing feelings to survive. To survive in the midst of confusion and to have any sense of control. Adult children must dis distance or dissociate from their feelings of panic and fear. There are three forms of dissociation. The first uses the functional defenses of the mind to deny or distort the painful reality by repressing, projecting, or rationalizing the feelings that are causing the pain. Using a substance to alter the feelings is the second way to dissociate from feeling pain. The most easily available substances are alcohol, sugar, nicotine, and caffeine. A final form of dissociation uses negative excitement to keep us unaware of deeper fear. By focusing our attention on phobias, obsessions, dreams, and taboos, and compulsively tensing in response to these fears, we force the body to build a protective physical armor and to produce adrenaline, endorphins, and melatonin to chemically block the perception of pain. So I found that really surreal and really <coughs> fascinating. Um, how it's describing how people can actually choose negative emotions that are more in control than the deeper pain. And um, I think that what the tool that I want to talk about is learning to sit with feelings rather than pick something up to make them go away or try to rationalize them or um, become so concerned with the stresses of my life and the clutter of my life that I'm actually avoiding those feelings. So just a bit about where I come from. Um, I don't have so many memories of my childhood, which tends to be a sign that there's something murky about it uh, and that there was dissociation going on. I was alone a lot. Both my parents were obsessed with their work. They were foreign correspondents. I have boxes full of letters from my mom from when I was like three to seven. Just She was always away on business trips. I was pretty much raised by a nanny or by a few nannies. And um, the memories that I do have of my mom, I don't think I've ever seen her go a night without at least two to three glasses of wine. And she never seems drunk, um, and the, she's, very, she's a very functional person. But, you know, as, after I started attending this meeting for a bit, I started to notice her misplacing things and her 
how easily she falls into a panic. And I started to realize that there was some kind of thing. I don't necessarily know that alcohol is the thing, but I think almost alcohol is part of this picking up a substance to not have to deal with feelings that I'm also dealing with. So, and I started to realize that when she was around, she was so easily overwhelmed that I became her, um, I almost think of like a court jester. Like, I was there to not stress her out. I remember being five years old and laughing at a joke my dad had said, and she had a, a breakdown because <laughs> she thought she wasn't funny and we didn't like her. And I had to take care of her, really. And, um, you know, it's tricky for me and my family because my parents actually really, I mean, they, I know, you know, they say that our parents always do the best they could, and that's true for my parents too, but even beyond, they really stated their love and tried their best to give me what they could. And um, a lot of time for them, that was shelter, and that was um, sometimes throwing money at problems. Uh, but there was a lot of neglect there that I've just been uncovering recently. And um, so anyway, so I was alone. I would like become obsessed with projects. I'd become obsessed with origami. I just, and that's where my perfectionism started to come in because the paper starts to creep. You fold it once and then you fold it a second time and that original fold that you lined up, it starts to creep past. And I would like rage over these. I wouldn't, like I would crumple these projects because I couldn't get it right. And um, you know, and that was, that was one of the ways that I was kind of pouring myself into something else because I, I, I was feeling a bit... I used to lie awake at night and think that I was about to hear a gunshot and that my mom was going to kill herself when I was, like, six years old. And I must have seen some movie where somebody had a gun and, like, you know, that was just the level of, like, caretaker that I felt that I had to be. Um, and somewhere along the way... My older brother, at a very young age, nine years old or so, started exhibiting um, signs of severe bipolar, um, schizoaffective, and I mean, he was like a suicidal, rageful nine-year-old. And, um, and, you know, either there was a red alert going on in the house with my dad wrestling him to the ground and screams and coming into the room saying, I'm so sorry you have to deal with this. Or there was nobody in the house except for me and him, and maybe a Filipino nanny, because we were living in Hong Kong where most of the hired help was from the Philippines. A Filipino nanny who was like totally unequipped to deal with what was going on. And um, so it's interesting how, you know, in a way, my brother became a qualifier for me too, because I received so much physical abuse at his hands. And it's not clear how much there was and how much was just a couple of incidents that created a whole atmosphere of fear for me, and I don't know if I'll ever really know, because at this point, his reality and my reality, they are incompatible, and, um, and that's been something that I've had to accept since then. Um, but so, back to this like hero-child role, I guess. Uh, you know, I did, I, well, I, I was a hypochondriac, I got really sick for a couple of years, many years actually, and that was, I think, the only way I could kind of convince people to pay attention to me was by having something wrong with me. And um, the only way, and it was, it was either by being sick or by having a temper tantrum. Those were the only ways that I could get people's attention in my house. So I learned to manipulate everybody with my emotions and with my body. Um, 
And, you know, that continued, and then it became, and then the hero child thing, I was getting good grades eventually, really good grades, and, you know, my grandmother sat me down, and she told me I was going to an Ivy League school. I didn't get into any Ivy League schools, I only applied to one, but, you know, I think that was the beginning of my kind of, like, shattering of the role that I was being asked to fill by, you know, because I come from a pretty waspy American background, and that looks a certain way, I guess, to a lot of people, and so anyway, so I went to a liberal arts school, and I was thinking of not going to school. My older brother didn't go to school. He um, became a musician instead, and that was traumatizing for my parents, I think, and then, uh, <laughs> and then, uh, and then, and then I, you know, I became an artist, and I'm an actor, and I do all these different things, and, um, and then I graduated, and I went to Berlin, which is, like, where people, it's, like, if anybody's seen Pinocchio, it's, like, when the boys go on the roller coaster, and they're, like, circus leaders, like, come with me, we'll take you to an island, and, um, it's where you can do anything you want, you can play pool, you can smoke cigars, you can, um, be rowdy and there are no parents or anything and like and it's amazing and then slowly they start turning into donkeys <laughs> and then they forget their names and they're like and Pinocchio's like this is so fucked up I'm gonna leave. so that was that's what happened for me um, I went to Berlin on a whim and ended up staying for two years um, soon after arriving, I started dating somebody. We were a terrible match, but we had so much fun. I was on drugs all the time. I very quickly tested HIV positive. I didn't know how I got it. I was very careful with condoms, I thought, but something happened. It's possible that it was something that I don't remember. It's possible that somebody took off a condom. Who knows? But it started to really break down this hero image that I had of myself. And I look back, and I'm so grateful that I became one of the walking people um, that, I that, I, that I was forced to really part with this idea of myself as, you know, the origami master who was, like, supposed to be, I don't know, the best at everything. And um, so, I don't know, I just had these two tumultuous years, and I was really, like, checked out of my own parental role, just like my parents were. And... I was apartment hopping. I didn't really have a place to live. I got arrested for buying weed. I had to pay lawyer fees. I threw this huge event. It was a great success. We lost a ton of money. A lot of artists like wanted my neck. Like, and it was terrible because it was like, yeah, I, I am the villain here. I do, I do owe you money and I can't pay you the money and you're an artist and you deserve it. So, so something, and then something happened. I was at the club. I was at this, there's this huge techno club called Bergheim. It's where everybody goes every weekend, and it's like this addiction machine. And, um, <laughs> and I was there, and I like, and my, my, and I had two relationships in Berlin. One, he was married to somebody else, and they were like having screaming arguments while I was there in the room, waiting for them to finish, and they weren't still involved, but they were still married on paper. And the second was like this totally narcissistic performance artist who would have me carry his things and do drag performances and get so fucked up. And I would have a paranoid break thinking that he was falling in love with other people. And I'd talk to his friends, are you in love with him? And they'd report to him. And it was really a mess. And um, meanwhile, I'm like hallucinating. I don't know. It was really a mess. And so anyway, I was single again. 
And being single and HIV positive was a new thing because it was one thing to have somebody to hold on to and feel, again, like I could pour all of my, like I could, like I could use them as an antidote, thanks. Um, anyway, so I had this moment at the club where I just, I experienced some kind of something shining down on me. And it's so funny because, you know, I don't necessarily, um, I'm not very literal about a higher power. I think of it in terms of um, energies and, and our own personal guardian angels. And I think I really had a moment with that. So, five left. Four left. So, I'm going to move to what recovery looks like for me now. So, I'm sober a year and a half. I have started growing plants in my apartment, which is huge, because like, some of them are dying, it's fine. Some of them are not, I'm really proud of that. But I, I like in recovery to kind of building a stack, and the wider your base gets, the higher it can go. And, um, you know, I found a community of actors where I can play and have joy and also have a professional career. And, um, you know, today I went to the Social Security office and fixed a typo that's been on my Social Security card since I was born 25 years ago that my parents never fixed. And my identity's been wrong in the government because they neglected to change it. And, you know, I procrastinated about it for a few weeks, but today I just fucking did it. And, you know, it's kind of stepping into the role like that that's actually... To some people, it might not seem, you know, some people just do the things they have to do, but for me, keeping my fridge stocked, taking care of myself, getting my social security card fixed, being proactive about the things in my life, that's actually, like, really, in Berlin, what I was doing was not making progress on any of the things that I wanted to do in my life. So, um, I don't know what the magic solution has been. My therapist comments that ever since I started coming to meetings, my moods have really evened out. I think having a place to share stories and talk about things that I experience a lot of shame about has been really helpful. But also realizing like I can sit in a room and be using my phone in this addictive way or, or you know, trying to book work even though I'm already overworked and not even know what I'm feeling. And you know, there's an amazing page that I almost read that just has a list of feelings on it and what the feelings feel like. And I was reading that and I was like, what? Oh, this is like feeling abandoned is like feeling lost at sea. Mm. Oh, that way. And I have to like actually reverse engineer these things and say, okay, I'm dissociating. I've been dissociating with drugs, with overworking, with procrastination, with love, romance, whatever. Can I sit with the feelings? And I'm probably at time, but. Oh my God. <laughs> Okay, then I'm going to read about shame. <laughs> okay, shame. An intense sense of being faulty, wrong, or inferior at the core of our being. A feeling of being ruptured. A burning feeling in the stomach. A sensation of the body shrinking. Spiraling inward in the stomach or chest or both. Constricted throat. Difficulty in speaking. Heaviness on the chest and difficulty breathing. Feeling glared at by others. That's all. <laughs> <laughs>